It's interesting. This, uh, you know, I'm on a, I guess you could call it a speaking tour right now. And uh, this trip was arranged uh, something like six months ago. And um, I was in touch with all the places. I was in touch with Howard. And if I remember correctly, we had a, we went back and forth a little bit. But I believe we had settled on a topic that I was going to speak about unity, about achdut. Um, and the context at the time, uh, a few months ago, um, we were all very much concerned with uh, what was going on in Israel, but really across the Jewish world, but mainly in Israel. The terrible, terrible divisiveness, the bitter fighting that was going on. Um, and I believe, if I remember correctly, I believe that I, I had sent in a title, Despite the Dispute. How, how we can talk about with all the differences between us um, that, uh, that somehow maybe we can come up with some way to, to reunite ourselves. Of course, on Simchat Torah, the world turned upside down. And, um, and everything looks different now. Um, and after, after you know, a few days, and, and I realized I was supposed to be coming to America on this trip, and I thought even, should I go? Wasn't, on a personal level, it wasn't easy to leave, uh, to leave Israel now. We, we have, uh, first of all, two sons and a son-in-law that's called up for reserves. And just in general, you feel that you need to, how can I leave at a time like this? On the other hand, I realized that um, it's probably even more important to come to America and to share thoughts, to share Torah, to share perspectives from Israel. And I sat down and I looked at all the different talks I was giving and I, I said, okay, I have, to, I have to maybe change some of the topics. I have to address what's going on now. And I wound up doing that. And most of the talks are winding up being maybe packaged a little bit differently. Maybe I changed the title, but a lot of the, a lot of the topics we need to talk about, it turns out, are, are really the same. Um, I think that what happened on Simchat Torah very much shook all of us. And when I say all of us, I don't just mean the Jews in Israel. From what I'm seeing, it shook Jews around the world, and even some non-Jews, very, very much shaken by what happened. Um, a totally unexpected thing. Let's put it on the table. Absolute failure of the Israeli intelligence and military, just completely caught off guard. Probably the worst failure ever. They're talking about going back 50 years to the Yom Kippur War. Certain, certainly the worst failure since then, um, and perhaps quite possibly worse even than, than that. Um, there was a lot of talk about the Yom Kippur War before Yom Kippur this year because it was the 50th anniversary. And on the civil calendar, Simchat Torah was maybe one day off from the 50th exact anniversary, and our enemies undoubtedly knew that, and that was part of their timing. Before... Uh, part of what I do now, I'm a teacher, as I've always been, and then for the last 10 years I'm also a tour guide. And I teach in a program to now called TVA, where I'm also the tour guide. And before, uh, before the Chagim this year, at the beginning of the year, we were up in the Golan, on the beginning of the year uh, to Yul. And because it was going to be 50 years to the Yom Kippur War, I took them to a few places to, to talk about the war. I took them to Eimek those are familiar. We were at another site also. And I got up at Emek Habacha, to sort of introduce, that's where one of the major tank battles of, of the Yom Kippur War happened. And sort of spontaneously, I came up with a f formulation as I introduced this to my students, um, which was that the Yom Kippur War at the time, 
I said, the Yom Kippur War was the absolute worst military failure Israel ever experienced, and arguably its greatest military victory. It started off as the worst failure, and by the time it ended in spectacular victory, we can argue, we can debate whether whether the Six Day War or the Yom Kippur War was a greater victory, but it's 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 somewhere up there. Um, and if this failure at the beginning of this war um, is even worse than Yom Kippur, I think the potential, maybe not only or not even primarily on the battlefield, but the potential for something really, really great to come out of it, I think is also equally, equally great. In the beginning, I, I wasn't able to see that, but a month in, I think it is. And let me explain why and what it has to do with the topic that I'd like to speak about tonight. In general, from a spiritual perspective, I'm always very, very wary, and I think we're supposed to be very wary, not to try to interpret uh, divine actions and you know, make pronouncements that, you know, God did this to us because. This, this terrible thing happened because of this sin or that sin. I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. Um, I think it's a very disingenuous thing to do because <clears throat> usually when people make pronouncements like that, uh, they're identifying what they see as sins of other people. Uh, it's rarely people pointing fingers at themselves. And if we are supposed to be doing something, it's pointing fingers at ourselves, not at other people. Um, and, um, and in general, I think our sources tell us, for example, the, the book of Eov, one of the major messages of the book of Eov is don't try to understand you know, why things happen, on the one hand. On the other hand, the prophets tell us that we actually are supposed to, when, when bad things happen, to, to, to engage in some sort of soul-searching and try to understand you know, what it is that we need to change. And if, if, not, if, if nothing changes, if, if we emerge from an experience like this exactly the way we were when we went into it, then we've learned nothing from it. So there has to be some, some type of soul-searching. And, and with that, I guess, disclaimer, to me it's clear, and, and I'm not far from the only one, in Israel, pretty much everybody's saying this. Rarely has it been clearer to me what God wants from us than it was this year. We all saw the writing on the wall. The terrible, terrible divisiveness of the last few years. The, the, and, and we were able to point blame at certain people. We could say it was the politicians on all sides, from, from one extreme to the other, all the politicians. Uh, the political discourse in Israel has become extremely, extremely, extremely poisonous. Um, with each side completely delegitimizing the other and constantly outdoing the other with the, the, the level of it. Political leaders and, and, and other public figures and the media. Um, but of course, it's easy to blame the politicians, say it's their fault, but after all, we vote for them. People who don't talk that way don't get elected, and the people who talk that way get elected. So, um, so again, who are we blaming? Um, and... Um, I think things reached their climax uh, on Yom Kippur this year. I don't know if everybody follows the news, but there was a really bitter confrontation on Yom Kippur itself. There was this whole fight about a public uh, ni'ilah. Uh, there are a number of places in Tel Aviv where they've been having, uh, you know, every year on Yom Kippur, public, public tefillot. 
like a Kol Nidre, and then at the end for Ne'ila, and there was a whole fight about a Mechitza, and the city decided you couldn't have, and it went to the courts, and then they put up something else. And in the end, what happened was it wound up with a, a, a really, really ugly scene of, of Jewish protesters coming in and, and breaking up a minyan for, for Ne'ila, on Yom Kippur itself, something that shocked even many of the, many of the secular uh, protesters themselves. And in the lead-up to Simchat Torah, there was a lot of discussion about what's going to be, because on Simchat Torah as well, uh, like in many places, there are shuls and yeshivot in Tel Aviv that like to take the Sifrei Torah out into the streets and do hakafot in the streets and try to spread some of the spirit. Uh, and there was a whole discussion, what's going to be this year? Is that going to be seen as a provocation? Maybe, maybe we need to take a step back this year and not fan the flames and just keep the Sifrei Torah in the, in the, in the, in the Batei Knesset, in the shuls, or maybe no. And it was discussion with some of the protest leaders, can we do this in a way that everybody will respect it and whatever. And I have to tell you myself, you know, um, when on Simchat Torah morning, it wasn't clear to us immediately. We didn't get all the news right away. We heard that there was something going on. We heard that there were rockets in the south, which unfortunately is not such a big news item. Um, and then, but we understood that this was something big, and uh, security people came in and made a certain announcements. And at one point, I heard that it's not just missiles on the south, but that there was also heavy, heavy bombardment of Tel Aviv. And I have to say, the first thought that popped into my head when I heard that was, oh, I guess we don't have to worry about whether we can do hakafot in the street this year. I guess Hashem solved that problem for us. Um, but here's the thing. Um, if, that is the, if that was the problem, we've already corrected it. Almost instantaneously. If that was the sin, the Jewish people has repented Incredibly, and in an instant, literally in an instant, all of that fell away in, in, in a moment. Um, suddenly, we were at war, and suddenly, everybody sprang to action, and all of that was forgotten. And people that were at each other's throats a month ago are fighting shoulder to shoulder in tanks right now, and are standing shoulder to shoulder in the home front, working together to help. And that started immediately. Uh, one of our sons was in, was in Yerushalayim for Simchat Torah, and when they heard what was happening, someone told them, you should check your phones, you might be being called up for, for reserve duty. And um, they turned on their phones, and in fact, they, they had gotten a message already, and they started seeing everyone jumping into cars. He said, suddenly the streets of Yerushalayim were filled with cars, and half the people in the cars had military uniforms on, and the other had white shirts on, because they were running straight from, straight from Yontov. They got in the car, they started driving south. My son said they were driving 160 kilometers an hour, and they were in the right lane, because people were driving faster. Everyone was just running down there as fast as possible. Uh, we now know that the terrorists, who unfortunately, um, from their perspective, had a very successful day, and... Uh, Again, it, it boggles the mind. It's, it's, it's impossible to even comprehend. I, I remember we were hearing certain rumors on Yom Tov itself. Someone said to me that he heard that the terrorists conquered a kibbutz. And I said, what are you talking about? That's not possible. Uh, and then after Yom Tov, when I turned on my phone, at that, at the, at that point, when things were still going on, I, I, you know, it said, estimates are 100 dead. I said, What? A hundred, that's not possible, right? And the numbers continue to rise, as we know. Um, many, many, many more, unfortunately, than a hundred. So, so 
On the one hand, but, but we also know now, and this, this just came out in the press, uh, another article yesterday, you know, based on information they got from documents they found on the bodies of dead terrorists based on interrogations of captured terrorists, perhaps based on information they're picking up now in the Gaza Strip. These terrorists had plans, and we have to, we have to acknowledge this was a meticulously planned operation, uh, very, very, very well done from, from a military perspective, unfortunately. They had plans to get much further than they got. Uh, they were hoping to be in Israel. They knew that eventually they'd be pushed back and conquered, but they, they, they were planning to stay in Israel for at least a month, and they were hoping to get as far as Hebron. You know the map. They wanted to uh, connect with the Hamas groups in Hebron and basically take over the whole south. Um, and that was stopped. And the reason it was stopped is because Israelis, the, the military was caught completely off guard. They didn't, people didn't wait for the army. People grabbed guns and ran in there and formed ad hoc units and, uh, and started fighting back. Um, 200,000 reservists were, show, were called for duty. 300,000 showed up. Those are the actual numbers. Um, uh, people came from around the world. Uh, they chartered planes from India. You know, a lot of Israeli kids go backpacking in India. Um, and they all showed up and said, get us back as fast as possible. We're going to battle. And around the world, around the world, Jewish people sending donations and, uh, you know, what's going to happen in Washington tomorrow, all around the world. If that was the problem, the problem has been corrected. Uh, we, rec- we reminded ourselves that we're one people. And... Um, in ways that our enemies didn't expect. Um, the question, though, the real challenge is what happens next. When Bezrat Hashem, we win the war, how do we keep this going? And I heard uh, this week a beautiful Dvar Torah in the name of Rav Meir Shapira, the, the founder of Daf Yomi, who said the following. You know, the, the prophet Isaiah tells us one of, the, one of the images of the end of days, is right? the famous image of the, of the wolf that will live with the sheep and the, and the tiger with uh, all, these, all these animals that are, you know, will live together in peace, you know, whether that's meant literally or whether it's meant figuratively. But supposedly Rav Meir Shapira said, well, what's the big deal? Why is that such a beautiful image? Like that's such an incredible thing. It already happened. When did it happen? It happened, the Bible tells us, during the time of the flood, right on Noah's Ark. You had all the animals living together. You had already the wolf living with the sheep and the, and the lion with the lamb. It's not a big deal. Uh, okay, it, it's cool, but it happened already. Why is that? What's the, what's the big deal that that's the image of the end of days? And he said, the difference is that it's easy to do that when there's a flood outside. When there's a mabul outside, you can get everybody inside to live together. The question is, if it's possible to do that, when there isn't a flood outside. And that's the vision of the end of days. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves now. Is that, okay, what are we going to do with this? Like I said before, if we, if we haven't learned anything, if we go back to the way things were, we've learned nothing from this. And if we've shown ourselves that we really are one people and that we really are united, so how do we keep this going? And the honest truth is, it's not that simple. Because of the talk that I was supposed to give when I sat down last summer and I said, okay, when, when this was all going on, and despite the dispute, is it possible? Because if you look at the things that we were arguing about, and it wasn't really about the judicial reform. That stuff is, uh, there, there, are, there are issues in Israel that we don't have a constitution, and the balance of powers needs to be corrected. And, and serious people on both sides understand that, and hopefully something will be done. But that's not really what, was, what this was about. Beneath the surface, there are some very deep divisions among Jews 
not only in Israel, but around the world, about what exactly the Jewish people is supposed to be, what the state of Israel is supposed to be. Are we supposed to be a Jewish state or some kind of universalist, you know, uh, democratic state? Uh, are we supposed to be a religious state or are we supposed to be secular? What does it mean to be a Jew? What is our level of integration with the world around us? What's our relationship with, with non-Jews? What's our relationship with modernity? The things that we argue about are real serious issues. And both sides feel very strongly about those issues. And we should. And in that sense, the, the issues that divide us as Jews and as Israelis, um, and to a certain extent, it mirrors things that are going around, on around the Western world. If you, look, if you look, for example, here in America, uh, the general American politics, you have a very similar situation, a very polarized country. I remember when I first came to Israel, many, many, uh, you know, several decades ago, I was very disturbed by the, the, the type of political discourse in Israel, the way Israelis are always attacking each other and biting each other. Because I grew up in a country where rival senators would refer to each other in Congress as, you know, my colleague, the gentleman from Georgia, right? And they would speak politely to one another. And I was frustrated that Israelis didn't do that. But that's long gone here in America, too, at this point, right? And you have, if you look at the divide between the Republicans and the Democrats, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, whatever you want to call it, right? It's, it's, it's a very similar situation in the sense that each side genuinely believes that the other side's completely wrong. Both sides think this. The other side is completely wrong, unpatriotic, and highly dangerous. And that their positions have to be stopped at almost all costs. And that's the way people felt in Israel too. And, and the feelings are real. What do you do about that when you, when you, when you think that? When you think that how, do you, how do you bridge such gaps? The truth is, even before Simchat Torah, um, I actually sat down before Sukkot to make some preliminary notes for the talks I was going to make, I was going to give in America. So I, I, I actually pulled out from the computer things that I wrote down before Sukkot. Um, and that, then already I had written down, it's not as bad as it looks. Um, and I, I recalled some of the protests here in the United States that, again, on some level looked parallel. But I remembered, for example, there was a whole... There was a whole uh, phenomenon here, maybe it's still going on, I don't know, where football players would take a knee during the national anthem, right? Because they, they, they were protesting what they saw as a country that was, uh, I don't know, racist or whatever it is, and I can't sing the national anthem. I have to protest. And when I looked at Israel, I saw that both sides were waving Israeli flags. Both sides were quoting the Declaration of Independence, although neither side was really reading what it actually said. Um, but they were, as a slogan, you know, we're defending Israel's Declaration of Independence. There was a beautiful video, I don't know if you saw it. There, somebody snapped a 20-second video that said it all. Uh, one, time, one, one time this summer, in the heat of the protests in Israel, there was, uh, there was a major anti-government protest in Yerushalayim. And the same night, there was a major pro-government protest in Tel Aviv. Okay, now, of course... Um, many of the government supporters live in Yerushalayim and many of the anti-government protesters live in Tel Aviv. So they were each in the opposite city for the, for the protest, right? Um, and I don't know how many people here have been to the new train station in Jerusalem that was opened a few years ago, but it's, it's deep down underground and there are these massive, massive escalators, you know, taking you from the, from the street level to the, 
to the, to the platform. So it was about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and a train had come in from Tel Aviv, and there were tons and tons of people getting off the train who were pro-government protesters who were, had come back home to Yerushalayim, and that same train was headed back out, right? So there were lots of people coming down the escalators who were anti-government protesters going home to Tel Aviv. Okay, so, and you, every, you saw from their T-shirts what, what side they were on, so to speak, and someone got this beautiful visual of people coming up the escalator and down the escalator with the opposite T-shirts, both sides waving flags, and at some point, somebody reached across the aisle to the opposite escalator and started shaking hands and, and giving a high five, and then everybody else started doing it too, right? And it was a beautiful image of, of people saying, listen, we understand that we're really on the same side here, we're really one people, even in, in, in the midst of it, right? And, and those are the... Those are the feelings we have to hook on to. And yet, the question still remains. How do you bridge... So the sentiment is beautiful, right? And when there's a mabul outside, and when there's a war going on, we can put everything else aside, and you can see, you can see, uh, you can see uh, Hasidim with Strymlach dancing with Israeli flags, which there was a video going around, it happened at some wedding. Or you can see people you know, putting everything aside and, and working together for the common good. But we are going to have to return to those debates. And uh, again, it's not only in Israel. Um, the same debates divide Jewish communities around the world as well. And as people who are committed to Torah and who have very strong opinions, as we should, and have red lines, the question is how can we bridge that gap? And so what I'd like to just take a few minutes, and that's, that's the sheet that you have in front of you here, um, I'd like to try to suggest a different way of looking at things. Uh, and before we actually get to the sheet, just one other, one other piece of introduction, and I'll include in this a little, a little commercial, a little plug. Um, I have a, I guess you can call it a philosophy. I have a, a set of ideas that I've been working with and teaching about for, for a few decades, actually, uh, which I've given a name to. I call it Am Levadad. Uh, which is a reference to a pasuk in Bamibar. Um, and these ideas, I really believe, are the truth. I think they're solidly backed up in the sources and by history, both. Uh, and yet, uh, it's, it's a very different way of looking at things that most people are, are accustomed to. Uh, around 20 years ago, literally, I, I started writing a book on this. I never finished it. It was a bad book. And it, it just didn't, it didn't come together well. Um, and I put it down for quite a while, and I've been teaching about it in different areas. And uh, around six months ago or so, I, uh, well, it started about a year ago, I said to myself, I've I got to do something. You know, maybe I'll write a book. I'll start again. But before that, I, I you know, said, this is the 21st century. Maybe I'll start with some videos. All right? And I, I spent some time and, and, and some money also, and I produced like a, a short series of videos, which you can see on my website, rabbihaber.net. Um, it's a short series of nine videos, I think. Um, the whole thing is like an hour, less than an hour and a half. If you'd sit and watch it from beginning to end, you don't have to do it that way. You can also listen to them. They're on like the podcast platforms. You can also just read them. I have transcripts up there. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of that now, but I would, I would love it if people would, would watch and, and listen. But um, I'll share just one piece of what I'm, what I'm trying to say there, um, which is relevant to what I want to say here tonight. And one of, one of the paradigm shifts that I suggest there is that we have to stop thinking about ourselves as a religion. We have to stop thinking of ourselves, what are we Jews? We're people who observe the religion called Judaism. I think that's false. There's no such religion called Judaism. 
or if there is, it's not the Torah. The Torah doesn't speak about a religion called Judaism. The Torah has a religion, but it's, it's, it's for all humanity. Uh, in rabbinic sources, it goes by the name Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, um, Seven Noachide Laws, uh, which would take a whole different lecture to explain what they really are, but suffice it to say, first of all, it's not seven laws. It's many, many more than that. It's seven categories of laws, which create a whole structure for life based on certain basic principles called monotheism and ethics and human dignity and holiness. And if you look at, if you look at the seven laws and, and their derivatives, that's what basically it is. And that's, and that's basically what the way the Torah expects the entire world to live. And it's not, it's not Judaism. It's, it's for the whole world. And if you read the sources, by the way, the Rambam says, for example, that non-Jews are supposed to be following these laws because they're commanded by the Torah. The Torah is not for the Jews. The Torah is for everybody. I know that sounds radical, but it's, it's actually what the sources say. All human beings are supposed to follow the Torah. Following the Torah doesn't mean keeping, keeping the 613 mitzvot. Those are for us. But everybody's supposed to follow the Torah, and that's the religion of the Torah. So it's not Judaism. What is the Jewish people? The Jewish people is meant to be, is this nation, which I call Am Levadad, a nation which is unlike all other nations. The Torah said it and history showed it. And the Jewish people, when we were given the Torah, we were told, Vatem tihiuli mamlechet kohanim v'goy kadosh. You're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. We're supposed to be the, the leaders, the priests who are leading all the others, meaning all of humanity, in its quest uh, to, to perfect the world. And in order to do that, we have to live by much higher standards of what you might call the same religion. We have to live by, by much higher standards, and we have many, many laws that we need to follow. But the purpose is not for us. The purpose is for us to lead the entire world, which, again, is, 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 is different than the way many of us were taught to think. We're supposed to be the leaders of the world. And when you think of it that way, the Torah is much, much bigger than we're used to thinking about. The Torah is not a book of religion. I don't know how many people here maybe are studying Dafyomi, but right now Dafyomi is learning Bavakama. And Bavakama, I have, a, I have a little vignette in one of my videos where I talk about this. It happens to be my first year in yeshiva, uh, even before I went to Israel. I graduated high school and I went to yeshiva university. First time I was sitting in Beit Midrash and, 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 and learning. I happened to be we were learning this exact Masechet, Masechet Bavakama. And I remember I had, a, I had a night seder. I used to learn at night in Moayu when I was there. Marev was at 10 p.m. I used to learn from 8 to 10 with a chavruta. And, and, and then it was Marev. And I remember one night around Hanukkah time. I had been there three, four months. And, uh, and uh, it was, you know, we finished learning. It was like two, three minutes till Marev. My chavruta went to the bathroom or something. And I was kind of just like sitting there. And I remember saying to myself, you know, I thought I was coming to yeshiva to learn about my religion. But I've been here for three months now, and the only time God's name has been mentioned in this room was at Mariv. Outside the sign says that I'm in the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary, but I'm not studying theology. I'm in law school. I'm studying about court cases. Because that's what the Torah addresses. The Torah is not, the Torah is the constitution for a nation. It addresses every aspect, not just of individual life, but of national life. It tells us how to run a government and an army and an economy and all sorts of other things. And if we expand our understanding of what the Torah addresses, that's the first step, I think, to be able to create a dialogue with other Jews.
But there are a few other things we have to do also. So now let's take a look at the sources on the sheet. So uh, I, I'll read the sources in Hebrew, but there are, uh, I put translations for all of them so you can, you can use whatever's better for you. Uh, let's start with the first source, which is Gemara and Masachat Eruvin, uh, a fairly well-known source. Um, people quote it, although I'm not sure that people fully uh, contemplate the full significance of what it says. Uh, so let's take a look. Amar Rabbi Abba Mershmuel. Shalosh shanim nechleku Beit Shammai u Beit Hillel. Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, the two uh, rival uh, schools of thought or, you know, two rival uh, academies in the, in the time of the Mishnah, argued about a certain issue for three years. Halalu omrim halacha kimoteinu halalu omrim halacha kimoteinu. Each side was convinced that they were correct and the other side was incorrect. And this debate went on for three years and neither side was willing to back down. Sound familiar? Three years. How did this debate end? With a voice from heaven. Yatsata bat kol amra. A voice came down and said, Eilu va'elu divrei elokim chayim heim. Let's stop there for a second. These and these are both the words of the living God. They're both true. So first of all, let's just stop for a minute and contemplate that. We have a statement here in the Gemara that's attributed to a voice from heaven which says that mutually contradictory opinions can, doesn't mean they necessarily are, but can be both true. If I'm arguing with somebody and I'm saying the exact opposite of what he's saying, and he's saying the exact opposite of what I'm saying, it's at least possible that we're both right. Now that's, for people of our generation, that's very difficult to grapple with. My children and my students' generation have no problem with that at all. Those who grow up in what's called the postmodern generation are very, very comfortable with the idea that I have my truth and you have your truth. Uh, That makes... um, those of us who are older, somewhat frustrated, uh, I think correctly so, and I think it's, we're correct to try to, to the extent that, we, that they'll listen to us, to try to explain to them the, the problems with, with a philosophy like that, where really everybody has their own truth and there is no truth, and, and everybody can just try to get along, but ultimately nothing means anything anymore, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's possible that they're seeing something that we're not which is that, and in a minute we'll try to understand how this can be true. But our sources tell us no one can accuse the Gemara of being postmodern. But that, again, it's, this is not postmodern pluralism in the sense uh, that the, the Gemara is not saying that everybody has their truth and they're all equally valid. But the Gemara is telling us that it is possible for two opposite opinions to both be true. So let's, let's, let's hold that thought for a second and now let's read on. It also says that it, it, even though Eilu va'elu elokim even though they're both true, the divine voice also ruled that the practical decision is going to follow Beitila. Not because Beit Shammai is wrong, but because the practical decision has to be made, we're going to follow Beitila. And the Gemara then asks the obvious question, which I'm sure Beit Shammai could have, would have protested. If in fact they're both true, so why are you following the halacha like Beit Hillel? 
Why doesn't the halacha follow Beit Shammai if, if they're equally true? And the Gemara answers, Not because what they said was any better, but because of how they said it. Beit Hillel had a different debating style than Beit Shammai. Beit Hillel spoke with respect and with calmness about Beit Shammai. V'shonim divrehen v'divrei Beit Shammai. And they would not only explain their own opinion, they would demonstrate their respect for Beit Shammai by explaining their opponent's position. And they would explain Beit Shammai's opinion before explaining their own. They would get up and they would say, let me explain to you why our esteemed colleagues, not the gentleman from Georgia, but the gentleman from Beit Shammai, why they think differently. And they would give an explanation and fairly represent the positions of the other side. And then they would say, that in spite of that, we disagree and here's why. And because of that, they won the debate on the practical level. There's a powerful lesson in that. Imagine if we, if we conducted our discussions that way. That doesn't mean giving ground. It doesn't mean saying that we accept the other's position. It doesn't even mean saying that you don't think the other opinion is dangerous. It can be very dangerous. But if you respect the person who said it, and you understand why he said it, you can give that space. And it, it actually doesn't hurt your position. It actually strengthens your position. Look, according to this Gemara, that's why Beit Hillel won. So that's the first point. But how... Um, okay, you know, uh, maybe I'll skip the next source, but um, there's, there's another point here that's, that's extraordinarily important. And that if we look down at the, the third source on the page, uh, this goes back to the beginning of the Torah. And here the Torah tells us about the creation of, of humanity, right? So, right? We're told that human beings were created in the image of God. And at the end again, man was created in the image of God. Male and female were created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? We don't believe that God has two arms and two legs and a nose, right? It's not, it's not a physical description. So what does it mean that human beings were created in the image of God? Look what the rabbis did with this. If you turn to the other page. Let's skip the first source on the page also. We'll look at the second one. Tanu Rabbanan. Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, Daf Aleph. The Gemara says, you want to see the infinite greatness of God? Look at this. Let's say a human craftsman makes some kind of a mold that he's going to use to produce some kind of objects, like, like, a, like a stamp that produces coins or something like that. So you make the mold, and then you use the mold to produce products, and all the products that are produced by the same mold come out identical, right? That's the point of the mold. That's what happens when a human being does it. God created a mold for human beings. And the mold is called Adam Arishon, the first person that was created. And all people were created using that mold. And they all come out differently. Each one comes out unique. And the next source, the, the Midrash, Bamid Baraba, goes a little further with that. And it talks about parts sufotehim. It talks about people's faces physically, right? 
No two human beings, you look at a person's face, no two human beings look exactly alike, even identical twins. Usually the parents can, can tell them apart. I've had many sets of identical twins as students over the years. Usually you can tell them apart. I've had some I can't. Some of them even tell me their father can't tell them apart, but their mother usually can. Right? They're never exactly identical. And the Gemara says it's not just, that's not just physically true. Just as their faces are not identical to one another, so too their thoughts are not identical. Just as each human being, right, and this is what it means to be in the image of God, each human being, you can look at their face and you see something absolutely unique, unlike any other human. That's true also of their minds. And if we contemplate that, we start to understand something. First of all, it, 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 it speaks to the infinite value of each person. In fact, the, the last source of the page is a Gemara, Masechet um, Brachot, discusses a bracha. It's a fairly, fairly uh, um, not so well-known bracha, uh, because it's a bracha that you say if you have the opportunity to see 600,000 Jews assembled in one place. I spent Shabbat in Bergenfield and the rabbi got up and spoke about it Friday night. He said, maybe, maybe, maybe this Tuesday will possibly, if we're, if, if we're really, really successful, maybe have the opportunity to see 600,000 Jews and he gave a whole shear. If that happens, should we actually say this bracha? But what's the idea behind the bracha? He quotes the same idea. So the bracha is called Baruch Chacham Razim. Blessed be he who is wise and understands secrets. She'ein da'atan domin zelazevein partzufein domin the same idea, that if I see 600,000 Jews, I see 600,000 different faces, I understand that behind those faces are 600,000 unique minds. Now that would be true even if I saw 600,000 humans. It doesn't have to just be Jews. That's true for non-Jews as well. They're also created in the image of God. But if I see 600,000 Jews who were given the Torah to study, what that means is that I have each one has a unique window into the Torah. That's what makes each person unique. And no two people are unique. There's no person that can see exactly the same thing that another person can see. And when you contemplate that, what does that mean? That means that it's built into the system. It's actually impossible for any two humans to completely agree on everything. That will never happen. By definition, if two people sit down to discuss something, they are going to disagree. That's not a bug, it's a feature. It's built into the system. It's the way God created us. And each one of us, therefore, sees things that other people don't see about the Torah. And that begins to explain how Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel can both can say things that contradict each other and can they both be true because each one can only, even Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, can only see a piece of the Torah. And that's why if I had 600,000 Jews together, 600,000 being an iconic number that represents the number that left Mitzrayim, I have something that maybe begins to approach a full understanding of Torah, only when I have that. And therefore, let's, let's, let's imagine a different way of looking at these debates. If we put together the, the various points we've just made, let's think about if we can take the debates that we have between the Jews and reframe it a little differently. First of all, if we go back to what I said before, and we realize that the Torah is a lot more than just what we call religion, right? If we think of it that way, we can start by changing some very bad definitions that we work with. In Israel, 
Uh, it's common to divide the population into what's called datiyim and chilonim, religious and secular. And I think those are terrible definitions. Um, and I'm not the only one. I had a fascinating experience. My wife's here in the back on, on uh, Sukkot this year. Again, days before the world blew up, when everybody realized how bad the situation was, somebody started this initiative, um, Open Sukkot. They were around the country, there were people who opened their sukkah and invited people in for the purpose of dialogue. There was a facilitator, and the idea was to bring people with different perspectives to just sit around and talk, just talk. Sit in the sukkah and talk. Turned out too many people showed up for the sukkah, we wound up in the person's living room, and we had a conversation. Everybody got to just about what's going on in Israel at the time. And I saw two fascinating things that night. First of all, I noticed that the older people in the room were much more rigid, and it was the younger people, my children, and people their age from other sides, who, again, those postmodern kids that were, that were like, you know, frustrated with, who were able to find common ground much more. Uh, and I said, maybe we need to take a little bit of a step back and, and just listen to what they have to say. But I was particularly taken by one young man who was in this room, a guy around 30, maybe 35, who, um, who, when it was his turn to speak, he said, one of the things that, one of, it was a question like, what, what frustrates you or something like that. He defined himself as somebody with liberal views, and he said, it bothers me very much that people assume that if you're liberal, you're chiloni, you're secular. Okay. The thing is, this guy wasn't wearing a kippah. So he says he's liberal, and he's offended that people assume that means he's secular, but he, was present, he wasn't presenting himself as a religious person. So I was curious what he meant. And when the night was over, I went over to him privately. I said, hi, and I, I introduced myself. Do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, you, at the beginning of the night, you said this. You said that you know, you're offended when people assume that because you're liberal, you're secular. How do you define yourself? And he thought for a minute, and he said, well, politically, I'm chiloni. I said, that's a political definition? He said, today it is. Yes, now it is. He said, look, I have a kosher home. I observe all the holidays. Sometimes I pray. I do drive on Shabbat. But I'm connected. And... So in Israel, we, we divide people into religious and secular. Here they talk about orthodox and other denominations, from, not from. And again, please don't misunderstand anything I'm about to say, as if I'm suggesting that the divisions are, are not important or that we can compromise on values. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just suggesting a different way of looking at things. How about if we, if we, if we frame it this way? We, those of us who are called orthodox, who are called dati, whatever term we used to use for that, we have clung very, very tightly, thankfully so, to parts of the Torah that unfortunately much of the Jewish people has abandoned, at least partially abandoned, right? We, we see the importance of Shabbat and Kashrut and Tfilah and Sni'ut and, and, and the various other mitzvot that we fulfill that unfortunately are not as widely observed as we think they should be. Not as we think, as they should be. And there are other Jews who instead of looking at them as people who have rejected the Torah, how about if we look at them as people who are trying at least to emphasize different aspects of the Torah? And a lot of times they even speak this way. They're talking about things, the liberals, the, the, the secular, the whatever, whatever, again, whatever terms you want, whatever groups you're talking about, right? Are often emphasizing values like um, equality, like freedom, 
like respect for each individual, things like that, which are also values that come from the Torah. That doesn't mean we have to agree with the way they apply those values and, and with some of the decisions that they make. But when they come along, and sometimes they even do, and they quote Torah sources, right? They use expressions like tikkun olam. And a lot of us even get offended by that. Well, who, do you, who do you think you are quoting, quoting from the Torah? Right? And it says, the phrase tikkun olam, the actual phrase is letakein olam b'malchut shaddai. Right? There's, a lot of times you, you, you get pushed back by that. You want to perfect the world, you've got to perfect the world by listening to God. But what they're talking about when they say tikkun olam, first of all, they're using, they're, they're quoting Jewish sources, they're quoting Torah sources, and they're basing it on Torah values. Now again, we're going to come along very often and say, yeah, but you're, miss- you're not applying those values correctly. Okay, fine. But maybe they're seeing something that, at least partially, we're not fully seeing. Maybe there are certain values that we've neglected a little bit. And if we frame this instead of being a debate between those who follow the Torah and those who reject the Torah, if instead we frame it as a debate about what the Torah says, you don't have to agree. But it changes the debate. And if I'm willing to say, by definition, if I'm arguing with somebody, there's at least a possibility that he's seeing something that, I, that I'm not. Because by definition, he has the capability of seeing something that I don't. Baruch Chacham Razin, Right? The same, as their faces are different, so are their thoughts. Then at least I can listen to what he has to say. Maybe he'll actually tell, show me something that I that I was missing. Partially, at least. And if I do that, first and foremost, I'm helping myself. Because right now, if the attitude is, his views are dangerous and he has to be stopped at all costs, that means that I'm preventing myself from learning whatever it is he has to teach me. His views might be dangerous, but he's seeing something that I'm not seeing. It has to be that way. And if I listen, first and foremost, I'll help myself. And second of all, if he sees that I'm really listening to him, there's a much better chance that he might actually listen to me. And maybe I'll be able to show him, hey, there's something you're not seeing. And he'll say to me, but yeah, there's something you're not seeing. And you know what? Maybe in the end, we'll each move. Maybe we'll ultimately agree on something that's different than what either one of us was saying from the beginning. Or even if we don't, maybe the debate will move closer. Maybe we can agree about certain things and disagree about other things. Maybe we can disagree the way Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai disagree. Nochin valuvim. Disagree respectfully, not just politely. That's itself worthwhile. But respectfully, meaning I actually value the person and what he's saying. And again, doing so doesn't, doesn't compromise our position. It's the opposite, actually. It, uh, people who are able to do that project strength in the, uh, and, and confidence in their views. And um, the good news is I think there's opportunities for that. I've heard both, uh, both articles I've read in the press, but even more so things I've heard from, from people, from my own sons and from others. Right now there's 300,000 Israelis sitting in guard posts and in tanks and on military bases with a lot of time to kill. And they're talking to each other. Um, and they're sharing thoughts and they're sharing views. And, um, and there's plenty of opportunities for those who are in other places to do that as well. Um, if we are able to do that, I think we can emerge from this much, much stronger. 
and, and, and move to something much, much greater than we had at the beginning. Not just, not just to go back to the way things were. We don't want to go back to the way things were, but to go much beyond that. And let me close with just one other thought, um, one other idea. Um, and take this as maybe someone coming from a distance. You know, I'm no stranger to New Jersey or to Livingston, but I have lived in Israel for almost 30 years. I'm quite Israeli. So when I look at it, the United States and the rest of the world, I'm, I'm looking at it a bit from a distance, and sometimes there are things you see from a distance that you don't see from up close. And that's the following. Over the past month, um, we've all been shaken, and it's not just by what happened in Israel, it's also by the reactions around the world and all the anti-Semitism and the frightening things that are happening on college campuses and other places. And our enemies, both in the Gaza Strip and their supporters around the world, have shown their true faces. And we've shown ourselves in the world some of our true faces as well. And there's something that's happening right now around the world. And that is that a lot of Jews who weren't so affiliated are waking up and realizing they're Jews. Um, I've seen uh, videos and things like that that were sent to me from, from college campuses, for example, pro-Israel rallies. I saw my uncle sent me also you know, a very impressive uh, video, a very impressive rally you had here at Livingston High School, I think. You know, and when I look at these pictures and I look around, and uh, from what I can see, I'm not sure that all the people that were at these events would have been there at a pro-Israel rally a few months ago. I don't think all of them would have come. That's what it looks like to me. And um, just this past Friday night, I was talking to people, and two separate people told me stories that were almost identical, but about people they know, not the same person. Two separate people told me a story about a person they know who's a Jew who's completely disconnected from the Jewish people, but for the last two or three weeks has come to shul every Shabbat simply because they felt the need to be with other Jews, even if it's just because they're feeling attacked and they need a place that they feel connected. And if that's happening... Right now, this is the moment we have to seize. Right now. If there are Jews who, who, who are waking up and, 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 and realizing that they're Jewish and wanting to connect, we have to pull them in, in one way or another. It may be too late now. I've been, I, I mentioned this uh, earlier today and yesterday. I told people, get on the phone and call, call your, your you know, less affiliated relatives, coworkers, clients, anyone you know, and tell them to get to that rally in Washington. I don't know if it's still possible to do that between now and tomorrow morning, but if it is, maybe. Um, but if it's not to the rally tomorrow, to something else, um, it's important that they come because Israel needs their support, and it's at least as important for them to come because they need to be there, and we need them to be there. Um, and if this, is, if this is the moment when that's happening, then this is, and for that, it's the people in the diaspora that are on the front lines. Um, we can emerge from this as a much more unified, unified doesn't mean but we agree. Unified means that we're working together. We recognize that we're Am Yisrael. We recognize that we stand for something. We recognize that we represent something. We recognize that each of us maybe sees a piece of what we're supposed to represent, and we're going to have to argue this out together. And that, and, that, and that really we're supposed to be leading the whole world in this endeavor. And if we do that, as I said before, from this terrible, terrible crisis, I really do believe, uh, just like I said about the first version of this 50 years ago, what started as uh, one of our worst defeats can become uh, a huge stepping stone to something greater than we've ever seen before. That's my, uh, those are my suggestions. Um, so, thank you. And if